0: We're here with the legendary Mickey Bliss, Mr. Club Bohemia, the Cantab Lounge. How you doing, Mickey? Oh, I'm doing fine. I'm just doing fine. It's uh, good to hear from you. Yeah, absolutely, man. Uh, yeah, we we're. I mean, we were just talking. sounds like you've been doing some uh, playing music and you've been doing some heavy-duty uh, reading and studying.
1: Yeah, yep, yeah, yep. Yeah. Yeah, I got myself on a schedule because I don't want to just waste away during this, this pandemic. So, you know, I have a repertoire that I play on the guitar and the trumpet every day. And that, that takes quite a bit of time. And I try and read, you know, like about 50 pages of a book. That's, that's a little bit harder sometimes, but at least I do like just about 25 pages every day. Once in a while something comes up, you know, I get some kind of scheduling conflict. I don't get the reading in. But, um, you know, I try to, you know, plus I read other stuff besides, but, you know, I try to read some kind of very, you know, intellectual book, something on, um, philosophy, or history, or, uh, physics, metaphysics, you know, something that's, proven my mind. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. For a lot of that, so, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yep. Yeah, again, uh, I know we were talking about this before, but, uh, Sucks to see, but I can't have the can't tap, you know, it's up for sale and everything, yeah. Well, it's up for sale, but the bigger
1: problem is that, you know, the pandemic, the clubs can't open. Right. I mean, you know, as soon as things get, you know, get healthier, a healthier climate and the people can go to bars, they're going to open up. And I don't uh, see anybody rushing to buy a bar right now. Yeah, exactly. So, so it's because it it's was, really a matter of the you know the, how the pandemic does i mean cause, you know, right. it might open up you know who knows it could open up in a couple of months open back
0: up yeah because it, so it, from what i was reading though that it, it had closed so it you so it technically hasn't closed it just that you know with the pandemic like you said it can't be open
1: right now and yeah, a, yeah. yeah it just closed because of the pandemic it didn't you know it didn't go out of business or anything and uh, i guess when they announced it was going up to sale, somebody jumped to the wrong conclusion and started a rumor that it was uh, closing, but the owner, you know, said that straight, he was very firm about that, that, you know, he's not closing, he's going to keep it open until somebody buys it.
2: So there is a chance we could see Club Bohemia?
1: Yeah, yeah, pretty pretty good chance, yeah. I mean, my, my equipment's all still down there, you know, they didn't, I don't have to move it out yet or anything. Awesome. So, yeah, there's this still a good chance. You'll know, we'll have to see what happens. Of so uh, you know, I don't know whether people are going to go up to the clubs. It's not going to be just like, all of a sudden Governor Baker says, okay, you know, the clubs are open and everybody's going to come running out. I mean, you know, the yeah. pandemic, it's, you know, it just seems like it keeps getting worse. <laughs> so,
2: Maybe, you know, I really
1: don't know what's going to happen with
2: that. Do you think the city of Cambridge will allow you to set up set Club Bohemia up in the parking lot in the back there? <laughs>
1: uh, uh, probably. Cambridge is pretty liberal. You know, but, you know, that's you can also do social distancing, though. you know, you couldn't, they wouldn't be too happy if we had a big crowd there. <laughs> that's always. true. That's, Just, not, that's not always a problem. <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs> Just invite food masters and we'll be, we'll be, it'll yeah, we work out. I the food masters, will play, you know, <laughs> You we got
1: whooped we'll, that. That'll be social distancing in practice. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Well, so I are you guys. Are, yeah. yeah. What's that, Nikki? I was going to say this. So I guess the Food Masters are still playing once in a while, right? But you sent me that video that you made of um, Love Potion Number Nine.
0: Right? well wow. Um,. I can't remember the last time the whole group got together. Uh, fortunately, not during the video. pandemic.
2: Yeah, it uh, might, have, might have been video. 20, yeah. 2019, maybe.
0: Yeah, must have been yeah. an old video.
2: But oh, we miss yeah. you.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, I miss you guys,
0: too. Yeah, the whole crew. Uh, we definitely miss you from the Whole Food Master crew. We were just talking to Brian, a drummer, Brian. and. Uh, yeah. Yeah, he said, we uh, said, oh, yeah, we'll talk with Mickey Bliss, and he said, oh, nice, mm, my regards. Yeah. What's Ben doing? He, he was a teacher, right? Or is a teacher? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, he was teaching from home, and uh, I think he was doing, he's doing some work, on the, you know, the side, I think, still, maybe virtually, or, or what, or something. Um, I think he was doing a play or something, too, like a, you know, I don't know how that works or whatever. Socially distancing. He's, he's writing a play, or is it, he's like an actor in a play? The music director, I think, or you or something okay. like that. Uh, but he's going back to school. They just have, they have to have like a certain limit on like the amount of people in the classroom and the students. Are pretty. It's he's limited. going back to teach. Or he's going back to take courses. Uh, teaching. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. Does he teach high school? Does he? It's like I think K to five or something or something like that. Elementary. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, grade school. Yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, yeah generally everyone's doing all right. Uh, definitely, we all miss uh, Bohemia, and you know, yeah, um, yeah, me
2: too. How yeah, long were yeah. you running Bohemia for, Mickey, prior to the closure?
1: Oh, let me see. I got a sign right here. When I started, uh, June twenty fifth, nineteen ninety three, was the first uh, uh,
0: opening night. Right. I was just reading, actually, you were at uh, the Kirkland,
1: Kirkland yeah, Cafe. Yeah, Kirkland Cafe in 2007. Yep. Right. 2007, and they sold that. And then uh, they got one of the guys in the chicken slack, this, the drummer that used to be in the ch- chicken slacks, he used to play with me in my organ combo once in a while, so he got me the gig over at the Cantab. So I started there in June of uh, 2007. And uh, it was pretty steady other than you know, when I got sidelined there for a couple of months when they had me being a disc, disc jockey. Right. But, you know, <laughs> that didn't last too long, so. Yeah. It was pretty much steady until the pandemic hit. Uh, it's too bad, too. You know, this year was starting out good. 2020, we were really having like an uptick in, um, you know, people coming out to the club. So, wow. you know, we're starting to pick up some momentum again.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, yeah, obviously then the pandemic comes in and screws everything but I yeah. I hope one way or another if venues come back that you know we can bring back the, the, the show Nightlife not that it, it it didn't totally go away or anything but I just feel like so many venues have been closed over the years and now you add this on top of it and it just like just sucks you know
1: going to be tough. The longer it goes on, you know, the more that are going to fall by the wayside. I mean, I saw some talking head. This is back, well, probably in April, maybe March or April, saying that about 40% of the, uh, you know, restaurants and bars in the country were going to end up going out of business. Yeah. Because they still have expenses, you know, unless the landlord forgives them, they still have to pay rent and, right. you know, uh, utilities and insurance and that type of thing. Um, so yeah. a lot of them falling by the wayside although uh, my publicist Joe told me that I guess they got some kind of fundraising thing online to save great scars that it closed but yeah they did
0: so. they did have that and then it did close but I guess they're now looking at a new location for like the, the old Regina in Alston
1: oh so, okay yeah because that's what I, the first story I heard was that they closed because of um the landlord didn't want to renew their their lease. Yeah, that did happen. Yeah, well, that seems kind of odd. I mean, I think they've been there like fifty years or so. Yeah, they've been, been around. Been a there was that, ever since I've been a you know first came to Boston, which was the early nineteen seventies.
0: I was actually going to ask you, and uh, I know Cantab. I know I know you just like you said you were moved over to Cantab in 07, but now Cantab started I think like the sixties. But um, okay, well, Cantab started in uh, nineteen thirty five.
1: I think oh wow! So I'm 1930s, totally honest I think it was
3: 1935, but
1: oh wow! Mr. Okay. Mr. Gerald and his group took it over in the 70s. Oh, that's what I'm
0: probably thinking of. But geez, I didn't even realize it was went all the way back to 35.
1: Uh, you know, it actually, just it started down in the basement, and there was a uh, Chinese restaurant on top of it. Wow. And, um, so they started in the basement, and then um, they ended up buying the upstairs. Or, well, taking over them, so they can't say buy it because. It, they don't own the building but they took over the space took over the lease upstairs and the upstairs became the main part and the downstairs is you know uh, secondary I guess has, has it always upstairs.
2: looked the same since 1935
1: Mickey I don't know about 1935 but uh, I think the first time I went in the can tab was probably in like 1980 or so, right around 1980. And it looked pretty much the same then. They they painted (laughs) the walls a little bit, but you know, it looked pretty much the exact same. Wow. Uh, The basement looked a little bit different. The the stage used to be over where my sound booth is. So it used to be like sideways. And then they had some guy came in that was sort of doing what I was doing. And he had rearranged the whole room and you know, put the stage, Across from the bar, which is much better. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm not sure how long he lasted. I guess he told me he kind of got screwed because he used to get like some of the top name bands in Boston at the time, Boston, you know, Boston area, and he was paying them guarantees. But because they were getting guarantees, they weren't they weren't drawing anybody to the can tap you know they're waiting they played someplace else where they working for the door and then everybody would come in you know everybody would follow them to come for the door gig and at the can tap they figured they were getting paid anyway so they didn't you know they didn't bother promoting it oh, so i'm not sure how long he lasted there yeah, but he, he did a good thing like changing the stage i mean it's much better having the stage the way it is though yeah i agree you know, sideways.
0: yeah i agree can't really picture it in the way um so, where are you originally from? Uh, Plum, Massachusetts. Oh, okay, I gotcha. So, and I read that you, uh, started making music as a kid at Catholic school. You were playing trumpet, is that right?
1: Yeah, yeah, I played trumpet, uh, yeah, that's right. I, I started playing trumpet, uh, probably like third grade. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think it was, yeah, 3rd or 4th grade, I started playing trumpet. and You know, I played a couple of years, and then I got braces on my teeth, so I couldn't play anymore. So, I <laughs> so had to be play, playing trombone for a while, which, you know, back then, trombone was still like a, kind of a cool instrument. But then, for some reason, they switched me to like a, almost like a type of tuba, which I, you know, it wasn't like one of those big ones. It was a small one, I don't know if they called it a baritone or what it was. but uh. Yeah, I was a klutzy instrument. I don't like it at all, so I, I gave it up. And um, so then I uh, started playing guitar. I played guitar for a long time, bass. And I, then I took up organ, kind of late in life. And um, so what happened was after I got married, I used to practice playing the organ every night. My wife would be watching TV. I'd be playing organ in the next room. And. You know, I don't play it loud. You know, organ you can cut down very low. It's like a radio or something. You know, you don't have to play it loudly. Like a guitar, you know, it's electric guitar to get the sound. You can play it low. I have to play it low, but my wife thought I sounded like Dracula. So she says, i got to get him another instrument that's not as loud as you look. <laughs> so what does she do? She goes and buys me a trumpet. <laughs> uh, damn. I got hooked on the trumpet immediately. I started playing all the time. So I, didn't, I didn't have any kids on it or anything. And... uh I used to come home from work. So they come home from work. I start playing, you know. So I'd play like three or four hours a night. And on the weekends, i play all day, you know. They got so ah. finally the neighbors got sick of me. Well, I let me backtrack. Um, you know, because I know how to read music. As soon as I got the trumpet, you know, I could play. Start playing songs. I could play like Christmas carols or nursery rhymes and stuff like that. But I wanted to actually, I thought I was going to be like the next Miles Davis or something. So I started like practicing scales, like I was playing the scales in all 12 keys. And then doing lip slurs and embouchure exercises. And like some of the exercises, even the exercise, book I had it. and says, well, you know, if these aren't going to sound good, they're not supposed to sound good, but they're building up your lip. So anyways, uh, driving all my neighbors crazy. So they uh, eventually told me to get out on the beach and play, which, Pretty good because I got out and got a lot of fresh air. I love playing down the beach. I had to get up first thing in the morning, you know, get out and play an hour or two before I go to work. You know, then I started having kids, so I had to kind of modify my schedule. And the other thing was, too, I got a gig at the Kirkland Cafe where I was playing the organ every Friday night, and I was really trying to practice on the organ to keep my chops up on that. So I left the trumpet, I hadn't played it for a while, and then I you know, like I said, I started having children, and my son started playing the guitar when he was, I don't know, probably, um, I don't even know how young he was. He was pretty young, though. he had a small guitar, so he was probably like, uh, I don't know, seven or eight when he started playing. And then I bought him a four-track recorder, and he wanted to start making recordings, and he wanted me to play the trumpet on the recording, so I had to start learning the trumpet again. So I started practicing and, you know, learning some of the songs he wanted, but by the time I got my chops back, He had already discovered the internet. (laughs) He didn't need me anymore. (laughs) You know, he's got all kinds of synthesizers and stuff and he can, uh, you know, get all the sounds he wants. So he doesn't need me on the trumpet. But, you know, I still kept playing. And now since this pandemic has been playing, I'm playing a lot. So uh, the funny part is I still got out on the beach, but the thing of it is because of this COVID-19 now, my beach used to be empty. You know, there'd be nobody there. Uh, even on the 4th of July. I'm a dead of a peninsula. But then the state built, like, see, there used to be a prison down the end where I live. There was a prison down on Deer Island. So nobody ever came down there it was the prison. And then they tore down the prison and put up mass water resources. So mass water resources comes to the people in town of Winthrop, which is where I live. And, you know, they say, well, we know this is going to be a little problem for you with, with traffic and, you know, more than you used to. And, so we're gonna do something to mitigate the adverse effects. We're gonna build a nice park for all the residents in Winthrop. So everybody says, oh, that's great. So when they build the park, and then what do they do? They really start advertising it. So you get people coming from all over the area to come here, because it's a beautiful park. But you know, that wasn't so bad until COVID-19, but then once COVID-19 hit, particularly when they had the, the lockdown, you know, it was like downtown Boston. You know, there was so many people walking here to go to Deer Island, so now there's a lot of people down the beach so i, I still go there to practice because I, I don't want to bother my next door neighbors but you know now i'm not playing scales either i'm playing songs and stuff that people like so actually people seem to like it i mean people tell me they like it sometimes people are on on giving me money every once in a while somebody comes up and makes me take a twenty dollar bill or something i mean i'm not buying oh, wow. I'm not trying yeah, to find yeah, it, but, uh, busking, you know, people, people that go up and their sister they, assist, they say,
0: oh no, you know, oh no, we love that you, know, you sound so good,
2: you made our night we haven't heard live music in so long and they they insist on me taking the money,
1: so oh, that's great anyways, <laughs> that's my uh, story of trumpet playing
2: well, you should you should start uh, advertising these these uh, daily trumpet sessions as shows <laughs>
1: somebody yeah. actually built me a stage. In there. It was like a piece of—I don't recall really it—a drift <laughs> awesome. or something. We get a lot of drift with this. So it was like big, big wooden box. You know, probably about like half the size of the stage at the uh, at the cantab. And then uh, somebody decorated it all with stairs up and everything. <laughs> but you know, I'm really trying more just to practice. I go up there to practice. I'm not—you know—I'm not really trying to put on a show. But <laughs> I suppose I could. I don't know. Yeah. anyways I just like playing I just like getting out there and playing and uh, you know I, I don't do anything fancy I just, one of the reasons probably people like me better now because I I finally realized I'm not really ever going to be able to improvise or, you know really blow jazz but you know I can, play some, I can play melodies I can put like a lot of get a lot of sound out of the trumpet I can get like a really you know big sound out of it so, so that's what I do is I just play simple melodies I got a you know whole repertoire of songs I do like Harlem Nocturne and Night Train. I just learned the Pink Panther theme. Uh, you know, I'm doing Sunny Gets Blue, um, Misty. You know, I got a, I don't know. I got probably like an hour and a half, maybe two hours of songs that I play. So, damn,
0: it's <laughs> awesome, Mickey. Uh, yeah. I just wanted to go a little bit back, rewind. Back to, so, you were playing um, when you first started playing the trumpet.
1: Like, uh, what? Whatever was this? Uh, it was probably the early 60s. It was before the Beatles. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, uh, what were you listening to as a kid back then? As
0: a, as well, as I was listening to AM, 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 AM radio.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember the first record I had that I really liked was the um, theme from The Man with the Golden Arm. Uh, I love that record. you know, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da, da-da-da-da. Anyways, it's, you know, it's one of those like uh, detective type music, you know, yeah, film yeah. and I love that one. So I, I remember I had that one and it had, had like a Harry Belafonte record, which it had the Saints Go Marching you know, on one side, but the B-side had the song about Did You Hear About Jerry, which was a song about a mule, was a pretty pretty funny song. <laughs> wasn't the actual performers that have other people do it but you know they had all the top 10 hits and I remember that one was one of the ones that came on uh but yeah the uh, Dwayne Eddy was listening to Dwayne Eddy um and then uh who was I gonna say there's somebody else I just thought of well I, I think I said Ch- oh Four Seasons the Four Seasons was one of yeah. the first groups I really liked um there was another record I bought was uh, Gr- uh Big Girls Don't Cry was of oh yeah, of course. yeah. Classy. we to sing all the Four Seasons songs on the on the on the bus on the way to school. That one, Walk Like a Man. <laughs> yeah. Hey.
0: Yeah, you're talking Foodmaster material now. Yeah, the yeah, uh,
1: yeah. Lion Sleep Lion Sleeps Tonight was a, was a big song that I liked. Yep. That was, came out it came up with in fifth grade. The Lion Sleeps Tonight, The Wanderer by Dion. Oh yeah. Uh, I went to a, I went to a Catholic school. I got banned at the Catholic <laughs> school, and they, they had a dance. They weren't allowed to play The Wanderer. At the, uh, wow at the dance because uh yeah you know i want to get just the catholic principles we weren't even allowed to go steady they didn't have rules against
0: going steady it's it reminds me of my dad uh he went to catholic school i think he's probably around around your age uh, and um he was saying like with his band middle school or high school around that time that uh they weren't allowed to play louie louie (laughs) <laughs> yeah, probably. They did. I don't think when I was in that at Catholic school they were hip to to Louis. Louis, so that got by. We used to play that. Oh, uh, nice. Oh, yeah. He said uh, they still played it, but they weren't
1: supposed to. Yeah. yeah. In fact, that was the first place I ever heard it was in Catholic school. A friend of mine played it. You saying, oh he's got dirty words here. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, you, know, you couldn't hear what they were. Everybody, so I wouldn't thought they knew what they were, but they they weren't really dirty. Right. but I mean, they even got, the Kingsman even got invested by the, uh, investigated by the FBI. That's The right. FBI the yeah. they were dirty songs. I think they yeah, cut the is, whole thing, like, they cut it in a half hour, I think, and they made, like, yeah. like 50 bucks for, for uh, yeah. uh, cutting the record. I think they even cut it as a demo. I don't think it was supposed to be cut as a regular, you know, a regular right. song, but then it just took off. Yeah, yeah they were big. Yeah. yeah, we loved the Kingsman, too. They were, you know, Kingsville were a big fan, but I didn't really discover that until right around the time of the Beatles.
0: Right. So um. Yeah, I was gonna say. I think I don't know if uh, Glenn. Uh, I'm not sure if this is what you were gonna say as well, but uh, were you now seeing like more? You know, you mentioned the with the Beatles. Were you seeing more bands crop up in like Plymouth and just like
1: get started in garage? Basically? Oh yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. but bands are all over the place. I mean, you know, Plymouth wasn't a big town, but uh, you know, it was about three or four bands playing right away. And, you know, back in those days, they used to have kids used to like live music. They used to have like dances at the high school. Right. You know, every Friday night, then everybody would go and you know, those, you know, those bands would play at the high school, and they could get, get some bigger bands from out of town would come in. So yeah, yeah, there was a big, big uptick in bands. You know, no doubt about that. You know, yeah. That and all, the bands just had like horns and stuff. Big thing right. before the Beatles was drums. There used to be this one kid in our town, Danny McAferry, that could really play the drums. And, you know, everybody used to wait for his drum solo. Anytime there was any kind of, you know, public event in the town of Plymouth. that somehow they'd get him in the band or something and he'd play like a big 20-minute drum solo. And, oh, you know, all the kids loved the drums. So, you know, the guitar wasn't that big of a deal back then. In fact, I can still remember the first time I heard an electric guitar. Uh, We were all riding our bikes. The word went around. Oh, you know somebody's got an electric guitar. All the kids were like thrilled. They all went riding their bikes, and none of us had ever heard like a real live electric guitar before. And we all went over. I don't remember what they were playing. Just somebody had an electric guitar up on their porch or something, and they they were playing it. Kids got all excited just because there's electric guitar. uh, That's that's wild. Yeah,
2: yeah. Uh, Glenn, I, just, I kind of uh, just surmised that you may have had the same question I had about Garage bands popping up. Uh, was that what you were going to ask earlier? Well, that is inter- that is interesting. Um, did you move to move away from Plymouth in your twenties, Mickey? actually actually earlier than that I you know soon as I got out of high school I went away to college I went to UMass
1: Amherst, which I went there for two years but I didn't really like that like it too much because it was, was kind of like a big kid school. so then I moved uh, then I went to Berkeley. I, I, I moved to Boston and went to Berkeley College of Music and did three semesters there and then while I was there I started running a music store called Jack's Drum Shop, which actually still exists today, it's down in um, Hyannis, I, I think it is. I was there like a year or two ago, I guess 2019, I was still there. So I started running that, and I, you know, I figured, well, I don't need to go to music school anymore. Anyway. I can, you know, because I wanted to practice, and I wasn't getting much time to practice. So I'll just quit going to school, and i am more time to practice. But you know, once I quit going to school, I didn't practice all that much. You know, I mean, I played in bands and practice with the bands and stuff, but I didn't do, like, the type of studying like they do at Berkeley, you know, where you, you know, you practice a couple hours a night, like, um, the Will, you know, with the William Levitt book, which is, which are good books, I any mean, guitar players out there, to learn how to play, you know, jazz, or, you know, read music and stuff, you know, the William Levitt books are really good. So yeah, so anyway, so yeah, I lived in Boston for seven years after that and then I ended up moving to New York City for a while, Manhattan, and I lived in California for a while, and I lived in Hawaii, and then I moved back home and went back to college with my parents and actually ended up getting a couple of degrees. And that's that happened, and I got done with that. I was in my thirties and then I moved back into Boston. I lived in the Fenways. Uh, back in the mid eighties for a while before
3: I moved up to Winter. I moved to 1988. And I've been living here ever since. So it's the longest place I ever lived in my life. I mean, lived, you know, in one house. Anyways. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. I
1: was gonna say, uh, what? So when you were, let's see, like uh,
0: when you went to UMass Amherst for college, was that the '70s at
1: that point? Yeah. Well, I graduated college in 1969. So. Um, and we graduated high school, so oh, wow. we went out there in 1969, and then I was there during the um, you know, for two years, and that was when uh, Nixon and Nixon had uh, the U.S. troops invade Cambodia, so all the colleges all across the country all went on strike, so we, we did our part, we got a bag of weed, me and my buddies, and we were like, all the kids were going to class, we started handing out joints and telling them, I will not go to class, you know, your summer vacation can start today if you join our strike, so. <laughs> <laughs> one of my best buddies was like the college uh, weed dealer. He never went to a class in his life, you know. <laughs> he, never, and he had a big sign out, because, you know, I don't give if you've ever been to UMass Amherst, but they have these high-rise towers, and he lived on the top floor of one tower. He had this big banner up, the guy's name was the Duke. He had this big sign, the Duke's on strike. Which, you know, was funny as hell, because guy never wanted the classes anyways. And he used to make sure nobody else wanted the classes. In fact, I remember one time one of our buddies were all sitting around smoking joints, and this guy's name was uh, Wiseman, and the guy at Duke said, you know, I got something to tell you guys. I caught Wiseman booking. Can you can't believe it? I caught a booking. That, you know, I've been studying. <laughs> we're supposed to study. But it's pretty easy to get by in college in those days, because the Vietnam War was still going on, and they you know, if you ended up dropping out of college, you might get drafted. So, they, they're they trying to make it easy for people to stay in college. So, I used to have like like tests, where right? we group tests, <laughs> you know, in other words, everybody, have a test that everybody could, you know, bid with it. It was like authorized copying, you know, you talk to people, find out what the answers were. I remember there was this one group of kids that like got a whole semester worth of credit for building like a log cabin on the uh, commons. You know, another, another bunch of guys jumped in a van and toured around the country and they got a like, oh, you know, a semester's worth of credit. So, you know, it was pretty easy. But the downside of that was that uh, people graduated from college, they couldn't read or write. So when I went back to college in, uh, I guess it was 1979, all of a sudden they were making sure you could read and write. And um, I remember the first assignment I had, I was supposed to write something, I couldn't write anything. You know, it was like I, I don't know what to do. So I got put in a remed, remedial class, but it was great because that's where I learned to write. I went to UMass Boston, and I had some good teachers. And you know, I was an English major, and uh, I mean, basically that's how I made my living since then. Is you know, writing. I mean, I'm not writing like a novelist or a journalist, but you know, business writing. I you know, I write letters and memos and and that type of stuff. Plus, you yeah. know, I did a lot of um, promotion. You know, over the years, I did a uh, you know, press releases and stuff. I used to be pretty good at it back in the day. I remember when I was putting out records, a lot of the DJs would tell me, well, we don't like your records. Well, we like your, like your press releases. Keep the press releases coming. <laughs> actually, they didn't say they didn't like the records, but they you know, I mean, they basically liked the, the press releases better than the records.
2: You do a good yeah. press release. I love it. Yeah. That was, you know, oh. that was back when you sent
1: stuff by mail so people would actually read them. I mean, you know, now there's so much information that, people don't pay too much attention to it. back you know, back in those days, I mean, I, I knew how to type and I had stationery and stuff, so it was pretty, you know, pretty official and stuff. often you know, people would actually read it send it to them. People would actually open the camera and read who was inside of it. Absolutely. Yeah, I was
0: going to say, with, um, so you said you were back in Boston in 79, right? Were you going to the shows in Boston at that
1: time? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, I, I used to go to The Rat. The Rat was a, the big place to go. Uh, every weekend i go out. You know, I'd go out two nights, at least two nights a week. I, mean, I didn't go out during the week because I was, you know, living in Plymouth, going to college and studying, and, and I, you know, I didn't have a lot of money to go out, but I had enough, you know, so I could go out Friday, Saturday night. So, you know, The Rat was the big place, and then um, a, place, was a place that opened up for a while down on, on, on Battery My Street called The Space. I mean, actually had been there for a while, it was like a lesbian bar, but they decided to, they had two floors, so they decided up be upstairs to book, you know, bands, and that was a pretty happening place, but it, um, you know, it didn't last too long after the band started opening up, it was maybe like six months. Then there was a place on Broad Street called Cantons, which I ended up uh, yes. working yeah. there for a while as a doorman, but that was a, that was a place I had to play with my band, because that was pretty easy, to at, at least for me, you know, the other places you really couldn't at least for me, I couldn't get my band booked. But you know, we used to play there quite regularly and did pretty well there. And then I ended up working as a doorman. Um, then uh, they started opening stuff up on um, in Fenway Park, Lansdowne Street. a place called Spit opened up. The, uh, the Lions Brothers opened up Spit, and that was like a real big, big thing when it opened up. But that difference was, uh, Spit was mostly um, recorded music. You know, they had DJs like the big radio station then was WBCM. They used to get like a lot of the DJs from WBCM would go there and spin records. But, you know, they would get bands from time to time too. they get some good bands. I mean, it was a big band uh, in the 80s for called Romeo Boyd from San Francisco. I remember seeing, seeing them there. Um, they had a big hit called uh, Never Say Never. It was, you know, quite popular. And, you know, they did have bands there, but the big thing was, like I said, was people go out and dance to the records. But, um, you know, the good thing from my point of view, because I was young and single then, was that like a lot of girls used to go there yeah, so. <laughs> <laughs> Although even, you know, even with the live bands, a lot more women went out to see live bands in those days than they do now. You know, I right. you know, <laughs> remember when it turned into almost an all-male thing, and was, you know, the girls were actually with the band. <laughs> you know, somebody's, somebody's girlfriend, or sister or something. I mean, you Yeah, it just like a mixture. Times, but I know what you mean. It can
0: be, it, it, is, it seems like there's too many guys there, you know, but, uh, but it seems like a mixture at times too. But I feel like in general, there well, I just, uh, Maybe more people people.
1: are more people <laughs> Yeah, it could be the show. <laughs> the well, people I'm sure I mean, um, it, it's a Kirkland and the Cantab. I mean, you have they ever got any woman just coming there to see the bands because they wanted to see the bands? Yeah, um, you know, I guess, you know, like yeah, that. I guess it know girlfriend or something. And there were certain bands, once in a while you would get bands that could do that. And I, I remember I was amazed when I took my daughter to see, um, what do I take her to see, uh, uh, one of those emo bands. Huh. Yeah, that like... Oh, my chemical, was a, yeah, you know, was, my chemical a Romance. Yeah, that was my Chemical Romance. Yeah. I thought it was like a Beatles concert. It was mostly all women. <laughs> it was all... You know, there's a few males there, but, you know, it was mostly all women, it was girls and their mothers, and, you know, it was kind of amazing. I think, I don't know
0: why, but I feel like there's some of those bigger, some of those kind of bands, especially that kind of style, seems to, I don't know, resonate more with with with, like, men and women, I don't know, but, uh, than other genres, but, uh, but yeah, no, I, well, I was going to say, just in general, it seems like more people were coming out to, from where we, like, just read and talked to people. It seems like the, the clubs
1: just brought in more more people. Well, uh, you got to remember things, this, that there was less less competition. I mean, there was nothing people yeah. at home in those days. They didn't even have cable TV until, like, in the Boston area, probably until, like, the mid-80s, early 80s. Right. Um, so, people didn't have computers, they didn't have cable TV. Um, you know, people went out seven nights a week. I mean, it's just, like in Boston, there was probably, like 40 or 50 movie theaters, you know, alone. And, I mean, the clubs all had it, live entertainment seven nights a week. And, uh, yeah, you know, people just went out to so then the, the, you know, the first nail on the coffin was cable TV came in. You know, that's killing movie theaters. And, you know, people that oh, and video machines don't forget they didn't have video machines either that was another right thing. you can people be going home you could go up to you know got your local video store and get any kind of movie you wanted and go home and watch it so it was a lot cheaper for people just to stay home and watch videos and go to the package store and buy a six pack of beer or you know whatever and stay home and drink and watch tv rather than going up there to buy yeah it's a good point i
0: think also too with the bands. um well, nowadays with the internet. It's like you just have, there's just so many more bands, but that doesn't necessarily mean more people are coming out to see a particular band.
1: Right? Well, the other yeah. thing about internet too is that back, you know, back in my day, if you, you know, looking for romance, you, you went out to a club to try and find yeah. somebody else, hopefully, that was, you know, looking for romance that you could hook up with. But yet, you know, yeah. you had to go out and meet, in a um, live setting, but now people do that online, you know, That's they, don't, true, you know, they, you know they go out and they do that online, and even the scene, if you want, I don't even know if there is a scene anymore, but, you know, the one scene in Boston back in the late 70s and early 80s, you know, it was a pretty thriving scene, and, you know, if you wanted to be part of the scene, you had to be out in the clubs, but now, right. you know, as far as I can tell, people do this stuff in chat rooms or whatever, the scene is, you know, on the internet, it's not not in the clubs. I mean, people come out because they want to see a specific band but i mean i don't know maybe the middle east they do in most clubs people do not just go there to hang out because they they want to go to a club no yeah that's right. a, you ask me about the rat and stuff i never even used to know who was playing it was just like i'd get in my car friday night and drive up to boston and you know go to the rat and find out who was playing was it that you know i went there to see a specific band i mean sometimes i would if it was somebody i really liked like you know if i knew the real kids were playing you know, I might make a point to play uh, to go there with the Liars or something like that but you know usually I didn't know who was playing just just went there because it was the place to go and hang out and I mean that wasn't just being unique to me that was everywhere I remember when I was in, in New York uh, we found some club that was way out way out of the sticks and we liked it you know the same band was playing every night too it wasn't like with different bands and we used to just go you know drive like you know an hour out of Manhattan to go to this place out in the sticks because it was a cool club and we liked the band. <laughs> what was the name of the club? Oh, well, I don't know. I don't even remember. I don't remember the name of the town. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how we yeah. found it. We just used to drive up there, and that's the way people would be to find a, a club that they liked. And the, the clubs generally, at least for weeks at a time, bands you know, that have one band that at least played like the whole week, and a lot of times they keep them open keep them all for another week or two. Um, you know, that's the way it was. People like the band to tell their friends, Oh, there's a great band in such and such a place, you should go yeah. down there and people would just keep going the same place night after night. But you know, you don't get that anymore. Right. Where are you gonna say, Clint? Did you say Miami? Yeah. Oh in Miami, yeah. in fact when yeah. I played the Rumble, his wife was uh in my band I got to you know, I started playing with his wife, um, Dolores Paradise. So, you know, I knew I didn't know who real well, but you know I knew him, I hung up with him a couple times, went drinking with him a couple times and stuff. Um, but yeah, he was one of the bands I had to go see back in the 80s, when, you know, whenever he was playing. If I was available, I'd go see him. Yeah, well, I liked band. Yeah,
2: did you ever go down to Providence, to the living room, or any of those places? No,
1: I never made it down to Providence. Um, you
2: you were just loving, You were loving Boston too
1: much. I guess so. I never really thought about going to Providence, I mean, it didn't seem to be any any point to it, I mean, it's... <laughs> yeah, I never really thought about it, i tell you the truth. Hey, that's fair. It was like, you know, on Boston, and, you know, a lot of good bands and
0: stuff, it was not my duty to go someplace else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, it was 82 when you put out uh, video visit cocktail for two. Were you playing that material live?
1: Um, no, I don't think I, I did. i try to remember, but I know when I put that that record out, like the um, the band that I was playing with at that time, I ended up getting a big feud with them because I kept wanting to practice. We had a gig. I booked a gig for the record release party at Cantones, and I kept trying to get them to practice, and they kept blowing me off, <laughs> I ended, ended up firing him, but no, I don't think I ever played that stuff live, too much, I mean, I think I, think I might have played it in the Rumble, I think we learned it that night, but, um, no, I didn't get too much to play, I mean, after I put that record out, I, I don't think I ever really got, like, another band together for a while, so, um, the end of the 80s.
2: Did you start your record label just to put out that record?
1: No, I had another record before that, Venus Dressed in Plastic Garbage, which I put out before then. Uh, but yeah, I, mean, I started the record label to put out my records. Um, Hitman Records? You know, say what? Hitman. Hit, hit, Hitman Records. Yeah, Hitman Records, yeah. I, um, you know, I mean, I wanted to put a record out, you know, so I came up with the idea of a label because I was putting the record out. It wasn't so much that I was starting a record label. Put records out. I just you know, I wanted to put a record out. It was something. Um, you know, once I found out you could do it by something, I always wanted to put a record out. And um, I mean, back. I mean, wasn't that common? You know, up until the uh, probably the eighties, when bands to put records out. You know, maybe in the, in the late seventies when punk started, but I'm not. I can just remember when I was young, if somebody had a record up, you thought that they were a big star. You didn't really even think about whether they were selling it or whether it was getting played on the radio. It was just, wow, you know, they got so and so got a record up. Can you believe it? Mm-hmm. It was even like when bands used to play like an original song. I remember how I like, back in 79 when I went to see this band and everybody was telling me, oh man, this band's so great. Dave, hey, we got an original song. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was just, you know, it wasn't that common for bands to you original know, <laughs> songs and, you know, put out records and things. But uh, right. you know, the good part about it was when I was put, started putting my records out in the early 80s, there weren't that many other people that were doing it. I mean, it wasn't uncommon, but it was uncommon enough that, you know, if you put out a record that was halfway decent, you could get a lot of airplay. I mean, you know, i got airplay all over the world with my
2: records. Did you consider yourself a punk? And then I put the third when I put the third record
1: up, By the time I put a record up, I think it was 85 or 86, I couldn't get airplay at all because it was just, by that time, you know, everybody had found out how to do records. And, you know, people were putting out tons of records. And, you know, people probably wouldn't even wouldn't even open the envelopes to see what was inside of them. They were getting swamped of records. That was before CDs. You know, by the time CDs came out, I mean, everybody had CDs. Right, yeah. At the clubs, yeah. You no, know, people would couldn't even sell them. I mean, Some people had to try and sell them, but they couldn't sell, them, so they'd give them away. But then at the end of the night, after everybody leaves, you'd be sweeping up all the CDs off the floor so yeah. people would leave behind that they didn't, you know, they take what they didn't even want. Them. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, anyhow, so you, you got a lot of airplay though on the the first two records. Uh, well, considering that you know, I was just like a guy. A little guy putting stuff out on my own, I got like a lot of play, Yeah, <laughs> was
2: it a little bit of a hobby or were you was this your primary pursuit in life? Was that at that time? Well,
1: I was going still in college then. I was, uh, you know, still in college. So I wouldn't say it was my primary pursuit. I would have liked it have done. I mean, I really, you know, get into the whole thing of making records and you know how you make them and you know wanted to do it and I would have liked to have put know be a real record label and put other people out but um you know i didn't really have a lot of, lot of capital and then uh you know i don't know like i said by the time i put out my third record i realized that you know it was going to be tough to even get any kind of hit anymore at that time yeah you were yeah, like it. I would, have, you know, I would have loved to be able to make my living playing music but uh, you know, stuff, I, you know, I did make my like, living in the entertainment industry for about seven years, you know, when I dropped out of college, but, you know, most of it wasn't being a performing musician, you know, with doing other stuff. I, you know, worked a couple of years as a DJ, you know, I worked as a doorman, uh, some clubs, I had floor man, which is like a doorman, but you walk, you know, it's a big club where you get somebody walking around on the floors,
3: you know, stage manager, that type of thing. Mm-hmm. Wow.
1: Uh, and, uh, what, what, what club street are you DJing at? Uh, there used to be this club down in Washington Street called the Two O'Clock Lounge. So I was there for like a year and a half. Oh, wow. Never heard of that. It. It's, uh... Yeah, it's long gone. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, no, it, it, I'm just love hearing about the, this like time period just because it's hard to kind of like wrap my head around it considering like what we know in like the modern, or see like with the modern times, and it seems like a lot of the, the uh, places are a lot different. Like uh, what were like the, like the sizes of these clubs? Were they kind of similar in size? I, mean, I imagine there's some of them like, like the channel that was like pretty big. Yeah, the channel was probably the biggest one in Boston at that time, that's kind of- Yeah, big. and not- and
1: then the rat was you know, fairly large. Uh, rat was probably like the like the size of the Middle East I would say. Um, you know, about that size. Cantons was small. Cantons was more uh, I don't know if we can say it's like the Cantab but Cantons was uh, had like two sides to it. One, one side was like just a bar and then you came into the room where the bands were and um yeah, I guess can't do but the band's plate was probably about as big as uh, the downstairs of the um, Cantone. So that was Cantone. Could, could you Space smoke? From, pardon?
2: Could you smoke in the club? Well yeah, well, yeah, you could, because you could smoke tobacco. So, um, you know, you could usually get away with going to the bathroom
1: to smoke joints. I mean, I remember going to the Middle East all the time and smoking joints in the bathroom. and You know, hopefully you <laughs> have a do about it, and I remember the rat one time, was, well, it was funny as hell, they uh, they had like, uh, you know, they had, I don't know, these are uh, five or six bands, so they had all this equipment piled up, and I remember I was sitting up on top of a pile of equipment smoking a joint, and the two of them, two of them were coming and yelling at me, you, know, going, you. you know, they couldn't get me, I was too high up, to <laughs> get away with it, um, even at, uh, you know, the Kirkland Cafe, when we went in there. Uh, you, you know, you couldn't smoke the weed right up in the, the room where the people were, but we used to have a little closet where we kept our equipment and stuff, and we had to go right in there and, and smoke weed and, you know, um, get away with it, because, like I said, you had so much cigarette smoke that it would cover up the, smoke, the smell yeah. of the weed. Absolutely. But, uh, the best thing they ever did is get rid of the cigarettes in the club. I remember the first first night when they did that, I was like the soundboard, and I'm looking at the stage, and I'm saying, something's different, something's different. And I, really, <laughs> well, I can actually see the see the band up there because, you know, there was so much smoke in front of me. I mean, you know, used to be so so much smoke in those clubs. Um, you know, it was awful. I used to get, I don't drink, you know, I didn't drink back in those days. I, mean, I used to get a hangover from just breathing in and out, Everybody else is smoking. You know, I wake up the next day and feel terrible. Oh, wow. So yeah, that's the best thing I ever did is outlaw uh, uh, smoking in, in, in the bars and you know public places and all that. I had to smoke myself too, but you know that's one of the best things I ever did was quit smoking.
2: When did you quit smoking?
1: Oh, let me think. Uh, it was right, right after I moved out of here, I'd say by '88 or '89, I was I started um, I started tapering off because. Um, I was bad to get chest pains when I smoked, so I lived out here in Winthrop, like I said, way up into the, the peninsula. So I used to not bring cigarettes home with me when I go home from work. So that mean it meant that I'd have to go the whole night without smoking, anyways. And then, you know, I wouldn't be able to get one until I get up in the morning and get to work and to buy a pack of cigarettes. So I was tapering off, and I was only smoking a few cigarettes a day. And then I went, I, know, I went someplace with my mother, went to visit a sick aunt. And I didn't have any money, and I didn't have any cigarettes, and I didn't want to ask my mother for money to buy cigarettes. So I went the whole day without smoking, and then I said, oh shit, if I can go a whole day, I can go two days. So that was it, I just, um, you know, just did it. But I I had to stop drinking coffee and stop going to bars. Because, you know, ever since I started smoking, which I didn't start until I was about 25, I started kind of late, in life, I wanted to quit. Mm-hmm. And Come uh-huh.
2: Yeah, and, uh... What what, well, what drew you to that world, Mickey? <laughs> What's
0: that?
2: What drew you yeah,
0: to...
2: What, that, was... what What kind of brought you in? What drew you to the world of... You know, Club, of Club Bohemia and, and that whole enterprise. What brought me into it? Yeah, what, what drew you... What did you like about it that made you want to do that and commit so much of your... Uh, time to such a thing? Uh, I
1: don't know. I just got into it. You know, it's not, well, first of all, I was only doing it one night a week when I first started. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't a lot of time. Um, you know, there weren't as many places to play them, so it was easy to book bands. Um, you know, people, I'd just sit in my office you know, so I could do it out of my day job and people would call me up and I'd, I'd book them and then, you know, it was like a night out, really. I just went out Friday night and it was a night out. Um, you know, and I, I started getting into it, and started, you know, enjoying it. And um, so then, what happened? So then, we were, we were doing so well, they decided they wanted to do Saturdays at the Kirkland. So I started booking Saturdays. And then, I guess it was 1999. The man that owned the Kirkland died, and so then I started doing it four nights a week, and that was kind of tough because I was going out four nights a week. My kids were young, so I used to. You know, get up, get up after work, you know, uh, Thursdays and Fridays, you know, because I was working Wednesdays, Thursday, Friday, Saturday. I'd get up like 7 o'clock in the morning and make them breakfast, make them lunch, get them down to the schoolhouse, still get to work. Um, so, yeah, I was running myself pretty ragged, but it was still a pretty easy booking bands then, you know, but um, all I'm, I'm trying to think, it was right around that time after I started booking four nights a week then all of a sudden it got tough book bands. Um, I think that's when the internet came in and I didn't get on the internet. So yes. I mean the Internet came in ninety three. I mean it might have been around actually the internet's been around for a long time. People just didn't know about it. The uh, military had it since the sixties, I think the sixties and seventies. But all of a sudden in nineteen ninety three, they had the world wide web and yep. you know, it became like commonplace for people to you know use their computers to get online and that type of stuff so uh, yeah great. Year, we had a we had a little bit of feud at the uh the <laughs> club. it was because um, there well, the was a new management when joe died joe was the owner so he died his family took over they, they didn't like the band They like, first of all they remodeled the whole place and they kind of ruined their place for a rock and roll club you know before that couldn't hear anything outside, I used to like, I used to have to see the shows too back in those days, and I used to always miss my cue because I'd be outside on the sidewalk because the bands would be too loud, and the doorman would come and say, hey, the band's not playing, you got to go in, you know, and do your announcement, so they remodeled the whole place, and they put like, plate glass windows, they tore up the walls, they put like, plate glass windows, they tore up the ceiling, and put some kind of different ceiling in you could hear the music all the way down the street we get the cops were come in every night telling us to stop stop the music because it was too loud and uh, you know the people were yelling at the bands and the, uh, the new management so I lost a lot of the bands and then at that, right at that same time the Abbey Lounge opened up so a lot of the bands I had been booking uh, started working at the uh, Abbey Lounge like you probably heard of Jenny D right? yeah, yeah so Jenny D used to be she used to play in a band, uh, I forget the name of the band she played, but I gave her a start at the at the Kirkland. so she, you know, we had uh, people like that. The, uh, band. Which one? Uh, the Jenny G- Oh yeah, Jenny, Jenny G- the yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, she was, uh, I forget her ex-husband, she was in a band with her ex-husband, like a hard rock band, they used to play all the time. Uh, Muck and the Myers used to play there, yeah. you know, but we lost them all to the, to the Abbey because these, these people, that ran the the Kirkland just didn't like the bands, so they were giving them a hard time. The bartenders were giving them a hard time. So, you know, I got pretty tough booking the bands. So yeah, then it became a struggle. But then, you know, I don't know. I, I liked it, so I kept doing it. Yeah. Uh, oh, and know, the other thing too, the Kirkland, I was performing. I was still performing every Friday night. And that's the reason I was doing, because I wanted to keep my Friday night gig. Uh what
2: what were you doing on Friday nights, Mickey?
1: Oh, I was playing the Hammond organ, I had a Hammond organ, which I could leave at the club, which was good, and, um, you know, uh, so I used to play every Friday, we are doing, you know, I don't know, kind of like jazz, R&B jazz, that was all instrumental, no, no vocals, and, uh, you know, we used to play, you know, when I first started over there, because that was before they remodeled, so there was a lot more room for us to do this. We used to set up on the side, on the stage, so we'd play in between the other bands. We'd do intermission sets, which was a lot of fun, particularly by the time we'd do the last set, because everybody would be, you know, we'd all be feeling good, everybody would be feeling good. And, um, you know, Joe, Paul, the woman club used to be in pretty tight with the, the city, so we used to play a lot after hours, even though we weren't supposed to. I mean, the people used to like up the, the organ combo that I had wouldn't let us start playing. You know, we'd go on maybe for an hour after the last band played. So that was a lot of fun. But then then when they remodeled they had me go up on the, the main stage as the opening act. And um you know, that wasn't as much fun. <laughs> but <laughs> it was still a gig. You know, it was still a gig and um so that was the main reason I like I stuck with it and I don't know, I just like doing I got into the whole thing of booking the bands and I don't know, I just get into it and I like doing it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And then, um, you moved over there. I, to the I took, yeah. took the organ over there too, but uh, that was a whole different scene when I got over there. It was, you know, you know, we played one time over we there, and um, the only two people in the audience were two guys from the other band. I felt so sorry for them. <laughs> I used to play my pay my guys guarantees, too. I used to pay them uh, twenty bucks a night to playing, You know, plus I give them Christmas bonuses and bereavement leaves and all that type nice. of stuff. You know, I wasn't making the money, you know, I had children's support and all that, so anyways, when I got over to Cantab, I knew the pressure was on me to, to produce, so I figured, you know, I better cut out my band, because we're not going to draw anybody, you know, but don't forget, I've been playing, shit, how long was it, I guess, uh, 14 years I've been playing every Friday night there, so, you know, it wasn't like people going to come out and see me anymore. You know, we were doing the intermission sets, we used to have a following. You know, people used to come to see us, and we'd get a lot of gigs other places. We were kind of like, uh, kind of like the in thing for a while. You know, people wanted to have something special, or something different at their, at their party or at their gig to have us come play the organ club. Do you have recordings of, of uh, that? Band? Uh, yeah, we we did put out a CD. Um, okay. I don't know if it's up
0: online any place or not, but we put out yeah, a CD. Yeah, get can hear it. Yeah. yeah, definitely like to hear it. Um, I know, I've heard the record from the 80s that, you know, the video was it. Uh, yeah, the uh, CD didn't do much. Yeah, I, so I sold a bunch of copies of the club, but as far as getting employed
1: I mean, it was, you know, pretty tough to get airplayed. Were you doing originals? Doing what? Orig- originals. Originals. Oh, no, no, not with the, uh, no, with the Morgan uh, combo, I, may, I might have had a couple of original songs, but no, we're basically just playing, you know, jazz standards, sure. um, you know, we did uh, Caravan by Duke Ellington, they used to be like our last song, so the big joke was, because we'd be playing, and everybody would always just say, play Caravan, play Caravan, so we didn't know whether they really wanted to get Caravan, they just wanted to get us off the stage like no one with the other band, so we waiting to go on, and then all of a sudden, go play Caravan. play Cameron. Mm-hmm. You know, we figured they were trying to, trying to get us off the stage, so they could get on. So we did that, we did some John Coltrane stuff, uh, you know, I don't, can't remember all the songs we did, but I remember Caravan, that was a, a big hit, Calor. we did Night Train, that was one we did, Night Train was one that people liked, um, but yeah, it was all instrumental, and most of the stuff was, you know, like I said, jazz standards. But um, you know, we did
0: do a couple of originals. Oh, perfect. Thanks. Um, yeah, and then so now, with the when you started at the Cantab booking there, was it, in, it? was just the base, uh, the basement where Cold Bohemia has has, uh, has always been is is in
1: the, the basement. Yeah, yeah, that's the only place I was you yeah. at the Cantab, was right down in the basement, yeah. I yeah. started out doing Fridays and Saturdays, and they used to have comedy on Thursdays, and then when the comedy, uh, they went over, they started a new comedy club over on um, Prospect Street, so they moved over there. So that left an opening on Thursdays. I don't know if you guys know a booking agent named Martin Doyle? Uh, no. he no. got an infamous uh, booking agent. So Martin was, like, doing some shows at the... Uh, can't tap with me. So he went to the management and he says, Oh, you know, let, let me take over Thursday. So they didn't really trust him, so they put me in charge of him. But to uh, make a long story short, he basically, I got I got stuck with the Thursday nights and he kind of took off. So I ended up doing the Thursdays too Thursday, Fridays, and Saturdays. well Yes, so, um, and yeah, so now that. I just, I'm sorry. I began what I was going to say. Go ahead.
0: I was going to say it. So that was 2007, so I mean, up until, uh, you know, obviously the pandemic and then the little uh, time in between a couple years ago. But
1: you've been there at Cantab almost as long as you were at the Kirkland. Yeah, 13 years, I think it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so I was happy. I was afraid that I'd go over there and get fired right away, you know, but. And I did pretty well. In fact, we did real well when I first started. I mean, we were, you know, averaging, I don't know, 50, 60 people a night. But the city of Bath was, when I came over, there wasn't so much anything I was doing. It's that I probably had about 12 12 to 15 bands that would play there on a regular basis that all had good draws. And then they started, you know, they started fading out. People were getting married and the band would break up. Or, you know, they're. Some different things would happen and uh, you know the bands that could draw us out getting to be few of them, and far between at least the ones I could get to play at the uh, at the Cantab. so that's why they you know they, cut, they helped there for a while there in 2019 I think was uh, we have a particularly dry price and all that um, yeah I think it was 18 actually because Zerman was yeah, in lose yeah. track at the time yeah. yeah, you know, I
0: think it was, because I remember like, the Mr. Airplane Man show we did there a couple of, it was like February 19th, it was like one, I mean, I don't think it was the first one back at the Bohemia, but I remember, like, it, it being like, oh, you know, like, it, it's back, you know, it's back, like, they're, they're doing rock and roll shows again. <laughs> well, I
1: think Mr. Airplane Man have about the first one, Cal Cali, I think, brought him in, if I remember correctly, like, in Old Dumbug. Oh, you know, Okay. You know, we didn't start doing shows regularly again in 2019, but we did a couple here and there because, uh, you know, the disco thing, they, they tried bombs. You know, so, we're, you know, after about a month, they were already telling me, well, you know, see if you can get something. But, you know, first it was like, well, make sure it's something they can draw. And, and by the time January came, so just, you know, just get, in, get something in there, get something happening. So, yeah. well, you know, pretty much back to normal. And, oh, well, other than they had to know Mohawk rules. Well. I remember you saying. i remember hearing about that. So what? What exactly was the no mohawk? Well, just no people wearing no, just people well, no no that was the, part, the one the reason I got I got canned, we had um, you no, know, I didn't actually get canned because they they kept me, but I mean they called me. But we had a you know show with um, you know punk rockers with you know yeah the mohawks and the studs and sure. all that. They weren't really causing any trouble, but well, I got to backtrack because. See what happened is Mr. Fitzgerald mm-hmm. you know, owns yeah. the place. He's uh, getting up there as years and he's having, you know, health problems, he's getting infirm. Yeah. So his son had come in because in two thousand eighteen and was gonna take over running the club. So so his son was there one night when we had this punk rock show with all the the guys in the Mohawks and stuff, and he just just rubbed him the wrong way. He didn't he didn't like that. And, well plus they kept going in and out of the back door and, you know, he was worried about that. I mean, I can't blame him. It's a security right. problem, but that's not my fault. I mean, you got to have. You can't lock the door. And they got the right. back door. I mean, they really should have a the doorman there or something. You know, I mean, people are going to go in and out. But in particular, it was like a hot night. It was like tonight is a hot, sweaty night in the summer. Yeah. And these people were in the back of the club smoking and I don't know, clowning around like dumpster diving and and stuff like that. <laughs> Yeah, But you know, the thing of it was, Can't Tap Doorman was out there hanging out with him, so, <laughs> yeah, you yeah. know, I mean, he, he could have stopped him, but he just didn't like it, he just, you know, he, him. he just didn't like the, you know, the punk rock, because it wasn't what he wanted, the direction he wanted to go, so, I think that right. really drove him to decide to do the disco thing. Yeah. So, anyway, so then when they started me to book a band when he was still kind of in the charge, they said, well, you know, you can book stuff, but don't book anybody with Mohawks. <laughs> so then we
2: finally got got him to waive that rule, and <laughs> the Mohawks came back. Oh, good. Yeah. Uh, that's awesome. it wasn't was business, because those punks drink a lot. It... <laughs> Yeah, Man, the
0: funny thing is that, uh, like, at the very least, uh, you know, that sometimes bands, though, get you know, make people uh, they get so disgusted by the band, like in the case of Johnny and the Coon matches that they run to the bar and then get the bar more money and it makes everyone
1: happier. I guess that's the name of the game, anyways.
2: the, hey, the hey, Mickey. Yeah? I-, I just want to thank you for one of the things that I loved about playing club bohemia was for someone just starting to play out it was really such a comforting place to play um not only did you you know you took some financial gambles in in allowing these bands that had no following or draw and might sound pretty amateur and weird you know that might tend to not really go well on the ears but i felt like you you really not just for my band but for for a lot of other bands i think in the local scene just giving them a place to play
1: well yeah you're welcome and that's, yeah, that's one of the things i liked doing was you know, having a place where people could you know easy place to get a booking you know you could just come in and you could get a place and, and play and you know not, not have a lot of fuss so yeah no absolutely but we, you know, we got big names too. So it wasn't all just beginners. Like we had, uh, I was over at the Kirkland. Jeff Buckley played there one time. And we had uh, you know, Willie Alexander used to play. I don't know if you guys know him, but he was a pretty, pretty big name on the local scene, really local. You know, all the real kids, Liars, bands like that.
2: Yeah, you had this band on that we just interviewed. Uh, one of the 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 members from Memphis. They were called Knots. And they played a, a show there about, I don't know, four or five years ago that was...
0: Yeah, it was about uh, almost five years ago, it was October 2015. But they were, yeah, they were talking about how much they loved uh, Boston, and they loved that that show. Um, amongst What's the name of the band? They,
1: they're called Nots. N-O-T-S. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. 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 We had the, um, the Death Valley Girls play there. I think if you guys got to get that show, right? The Death Valley Girls. I actually didn't make it to that one. But I remember that
0: though. So, yeah, there was some. Yeah, has been a lot of good ones. Uh, a lot of big names for sure. Um, but yeah, just to Glenn's point, just to concur with that, I, I think though that um, it really is a special thing where you know there aren't. I, I find anyway, there aren't as many clubs that can really say that they. You know, are willing to take chances, with bands, and have you know, it's really a place for young bands to, to play, especially bands starting out. So I think you know, it's cool that it, that both of those worlds exist there. It, you can have like big bands play with the draw, which Bohemia's certainly done, but then there's also
2: you could have the one. It's a great thing, Mickey, when you can have the band there's more people representing the venue than there are from the the bands or their fans so for instance it could just be me my dad and uh, that's it and then you behind the soundboard and then the bartender and then the doorman so there's more people from the venue than the than the band and then but you know, you're not immediately. No one's immediately ending the show. You're letting the person perform.
1: Yeah, that's why I always thought that somebody dragged all their equipment down to the club. You should at least let them play. You know, sometimes I'd get in with the bartenders like they wanted me to throw somebody off stage because um, there was nobody there. But if they, you know, that was the deal. We told them they get forty-five minutes. They get their forty-five minutes. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. it's nice
2: to, it, it's nice to play to no one sometimes. <laughs> hey,
1: that's great like, That's like today, right? The so prediction of the future. Yeah, I guess you're right about that, yeah. <laughs> um, well, the, the two clubs allowed me to do that, you know. Yeah. Um, particularly when Joe was over at the Kirkland. I didn't, never even really stopped to think that you might want, be worried about making money. <laughs> you know, with yeah. the new management Came over, that was a little bit different. Then that things changed. They uh, used to put the pressure on me to try and pick bands that would pour, that kind of would draw. And, uh, you know, the cans out there a little bit more pressure, but it wasn't so much from the owner as from the bartenders. You know, I got to deal with the bartenders all the time. And, you know, if the bands, they're not selling the drinks, they're not happy. You know, I got to hear about it. <laughs> but, you know, I mean, I can understand it too. They're not making much money other than what they make on tips, so. You know, they're just buying drinks; they're not making
2: any money, and um, you know, they're working people. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean that makes sense. Uh, I'd love to be back down there and buying drinks and bar right right now. Oh yeah, it's really um, I miss it so. It really this conversation, yeah. particularly, it's really hitting. It's hitting home. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I just love
0: the basement. You know, I, I love, uh, I think there's way too many venues <laughs> that are at ground level or something. I, kinda, I just like uh,
1: going down the steps and going down to a, to a basement. With a venue. Yeah, me too. I liked it too. You know, the funny part when I first went to go in there, people would tell me, you know, you know you're, you're never going to be able to do rock and roll down there. I said, why not? They said, well, to in a basement. It's all cement walls. And it's like going sound good. And at first I was worried, but then I remembered, like, all the. Parties we had in my parents' house in the basement. I mean, that's you know that's where I started playing music was my parents' basement. <laughs> you know, it didn't seem to, to affect us from playing down there. We cement walls, so it wasn't worried. Yeah, yeah. yeah absolutely.
0: Uh,
2: that's good. House show yeah, culture.
0: I mean, yeah, exactly. Uh, I, yeah, I mean, I can't thank you enough for all the you know booking, putting up with all our shenanigans over the years, and working with us and. Yeah. Oh, I always enjoyed
1: working with you guys. You guys were a lot of fun. Ah, oh, thanks. Thank you. Yeah, not not too many bands I didn't it. enjoy. But, you know, but, but yeah. you guys were a lot of fun. I mean, some, you know, some were more fun than others. And, you know, I guess there was a couple that were pain in the asses over the years. But, you know, mostly it was, you know, good camaraderie with the uh, the bands and the musicians and stuff. You know, I enjoyed yeah, that, you know, all of them and listening to what they were doing. Yeah, what know, it, just back, back <laughs> yeah it the yeah it was
2: interesting though I, I before before Chris and I started booking shows and essentially telling you what the lineup would be you know you, I don't know what that's called but you you know you'd have us in in effectively you gave us a little control to set up the lineup but I remember I think the first a couple shows, maybe, that I played down there. Um, I played with a bunch of other bands that I didn't know, which I thought was very interesting, um, a very interesting approach. I don't know if you have anything to, to say about that.
1: Well, yeah, when I used to play out of rock bands, I used to like them. That was part of the fun of playing out was, you know, meeting the other bands that you didn't know and meet you good know, people and stuff. and Yeah. Uh, yeah, you know, I used to enjoy that. I mean, that was pretty much the way booking booking was, you get put on a show with you know, the other bands, the you know, the booking as you know, put the show together and you know, wouldn't necessarily be all bands that do each other. Right. You know, when I first started booking, I used to try and do stuff like get bands that were as different from each other as I could because I, I wanted to be like Billy Graham, you know, the promoter of San yeah. you know, Francisco right. You know, that's what he used to do with his shows, like he might like have, I don't know, Santana playing with Miles Davis and, you know, Virgil Fox playing the uh, a pipe organ, you know, it was always like very entertainment, it wasn't all just the same old thing, but that, that you know, I, I like that, that variety, but, you know, then after a while, you know, the bands all wanted to play with the bands that, are, you know, same type of bands. Yeah, But, you know, as far as booking, as far as business, one of the things I found out was that, you know, package shows, at least, you know, last couple of years, you know, package shows did a lot better than usually when you put a bill together with bands that didn't know each other.
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. You get a, get a promoter like you guys or somebody that comes in and they put the whole show together and then
1: all the bands all know each other and they, you know, they stick around for each other's shows and people that come to see them stick around all night and, you know. You know, the business. I think we're. I mean, it's always hard tough to say, but from at least
0: from our perspective, I think it was always like viewing it as like we were putting a show together. We just kind of wanted to put like a bill that we we really liked. You know what I mean? And uh, but you know, we and we try to keep the variety in mind too. We always try to like keep. You know, might not be the most diverse thing, although we've had some pretty diverse bills. But like, I think though. You know, we we try to get sometimes, um, you know, people that might be interested in you know all the you know at least half of the bill that they you know what I mean. So it's like like they were like for the last show we did there I think in November was like Moto Electric Street Queen Sticker Shock and Food Masters. Um, you know, and so like some of we with some of those bands that uh, you know I hope that maybe like people that were into some of them. Um, you know, would be also the same kind of people who would be into, you know, the other band on the bill. You know, at least at least one of the other bands. So it's kind of like, I think that a little bit plays a little bit into it, and maybe with some of the ones where it's just like total variety and the bands don't know each other at all, there might be people who, um, you know, just nobody. People don't know them as much in general, or people are there for one band and then they they might.
1: Just be there for that one band and then leave? I don't, yep. I don't know. Yeah. That, that happens even when the bands are alike. I like, you know, sure, yeah. get like funk bands. I put them together and I'm thinking, well, this is going to be great because they all play the same type of stuff and the people will stick around. But you know, like like you said, they, you know, people came to see their band and as soon as the next band started, it didn't matter that they sounded just like the band that was before them. As soon as they started playing, you know, everybody that came to see the first band would leave.
2: From the venue's point yeah. of view, though, that's that's fine, though. As long as they initially came in the door, then it, it doesn't really matter what they did after that. Well, well not really. It depends. I mean, yeah. people, if other
1: people come in and you have people spend their money, it's fine. But see, they have to give me shit over to the sometimes because, you know, I book like three or four bands, and one band would draw, and then the next band would come on and everybody would leave. And they'd say, well, why yeah. didn't you just book that one band? But I tell them, well, you know, I don't know who's going to draw. I mean, if it's people that I'm working with on a regular basis, yeah. But you know, a lot of times, you know, I don't know. It's the first time they ever played there. I mean, a lot of, a lot of, I, don't know, I mean, a lot of the bands I booked only played for me one time. You know, mm-hmm.
2: they came in and played, and then they even if they drew well. I couldn't get them back, or they broke up. I mean, right. You know, so you you don't know. Did you, you, know, you ever keep notes? Drawing. That's why you, you, know, you put three, four bands on because you don't know who's going to draw and who's not.
1: Yeah, I got that right back from the first show up to the last one I did. I got a um, notebook that I have it's in the uh, basement of the can tab. But yeah, you, to, you know, sit down how many people actually paid, not how many people came, but how many you know paid admissions we had, you know, how much money we took in, you know, that type of thing.
2: Yeah, so it's awesome. All that. But when I first started in 93, people used to stick around more too, even if it wasn't all bands that were, knew each other. You know, people used to come out and make a night of it. That's I'm cool. I'm not sure. What it kind of morphed into people just coming to see one band and, you know, screwing. Because they wanted to go home and watch the cable TV and go on the okay. and then go on the yeah. internet and watch um yeah, probably I'm watch sure. nothing. You're probably right. Yeah, you're
1: probably right about that. Yeah. was right. going say there's also obviously the bar it's gonna
0: be happy if people stick around so even if the uh ton of people come up for one band then it's like uh they leave and well less money at the bar yeah gotta think of the bartenders uh, you know it's definitely a factor so one way or another
2: shout out to all the bartenders right now that are not able to do what they love I know yeah um so yeah I wanted to
0: touch upon uh it was really great doing the Mickey Bliss, uh, Johnny Cruise Masters-backed Mickey Bliss sets um, last
1: it oh, was one of the high points of my life. <laughs> uh, I really
2: enjoyed playing, playing those shows. That was, that was a lot of fun. That was yeah, that yeah, was so much fun. Great. I'm really glad that it happened. Uh, that was looking, yeah, was yeah, too. Just kind of looking back on those with really fond memories. We'll, uh we'll have to do it again mickey yeah, yeah once the clubs
1: open up yeah yeah i be happy to do it just want to get enough notice so i can learn the songs again <laughs> yeah yeah absolutely As um i mean we love this record yeah so we just yeah you
0: know, it's almost just like a natural thing to be like, you know have a show yeah,
1: really it's yeah. right, yeah. just to sing not have to play so whatever I played before i was always playing an instrument and singing at the same time but you know, this time I didn't have to worry about that. You guys played the, you know, the backing, the backing, and I just had to stand there and sing. So I was really able to, to get into the singing. Plus, you know, I've been doing a lot of singing lately. I've been singing like, you know, standards and stuff like that. So I've actually been, you know, working on my voice. So I was, you know, really able to
2: project and, you know, belt them out there. i oh, see, so you're, so, yeah, you're I've ready. Really enjoyed that. You know what we could do, Mickey? If would you would we be allowed to get away with? Uh, bringing a generator down to you on the beach, and sort of doing some outdoor gigs? I think we could, yeah. Get the whole band down there? I think you could. I mean, you could play in my backyard. You, would, you know, I mean, you could go out on the beach, but you could also play in my backyard. You know, they can just plug into the wall.
1: Oh, I mean, I'm practically on the beach. You know, I'm on a peninsula. i like got Boston Harbor on one side of me. I look out my front window, and it's like, yeah, you know, there's a street and then there's a, you know, a house and then there's the bay. And yeah. if so I look out my, my back window, unfortunately somebody's building a Trump Tower right behind my house now, but, you wow.
2: know, you can still on half of it, yeah. you can still see the whole beach and the ocean. So, you know, I'm basically on, the, my house is on the beach anyways. So, the, but, there wouldn't be any noise issues? Um, there's
1: yeah, not much they can do about it if you do it during the day. You know, if you play late at night, somebody could say something. I mean, put it this way, I, I've had a couple, I had, when I first moved there, we had some parties, like 4th of July parties, and we were able to get away with it. Oh, it's awesome. So, it probably became like if you wanted to do it this summer, you know, Labor Day weekend would probably be a good weekend, because it's, you know, party weekend, and people aren't probably going to complain too much if you have a, you know, noisy band playing.
2: Yeah, well, thank you. That, that would really be, that would be quite amazing.
1: Yeah. I mentioned it to. Um, he was he was worried about the COVID nineteen um, you know social system yeah. and all that type of stuff. But yeah, you can go on the beach too. I don't think they shut you down on the
2: beach. Um, hey, and the possibilities are endless. Um, but just to j- the feeling to get out there in in jam again would would really be just I can't even imagine the feeling right now. Yeah.
1: yeah. Yeah, it would be good welcome. You guys are always welcome, you know. But, but there's not much time left in the summer. I mean, it's gonna.
2: Yeah, we'll have a good. We'll have a Labor Day bash. Yeah,
1: you could. You could if you want. Yeah.
2: Oh, thank
0: you. Yeah, I mean, yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah just, mean, just
1: let me
0: know.
1: Yeah, welcome. Can we actually cut you know guitar ramps here too? You know, we don't have like
2: any drums or anything like that. We can bring. We'll bring the uh, some speakers with the microphone. Yeah. Yeah, you could do that.
1: I mean, that's what they do on the subway. They you know plug their microphones into guitar amps. I mean, for years we used to use guitar amps when I was first starting out as PA amps. You know, we used to get head like a head, just, you know custom amp for a head. We liked customs because customs didn't feed back for some reason. Oh. amps did. Back up. You know, back in those days when I first started playing, they didn't really have crossovers. Like, the best system you could get was a sure Vocal Master, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the columns didn't have like horns or anything, it was just like a row of, uh, you know, cone speakers, no crossover for the high end or anything, but it doesn't make a big difference, it's no doubt about it. they have a damn crossover. I can always tell when my horns are blown, all of a sudden something sounds weird in the PA system. You know, sounds muddy, and you go put your ear down on the horn, and all yeah, the horns,
2: horns blown. You gotta gotta fix the horn. When, when do you? the Question that we always ask everyone, and yeah. uh, you know, Chris. Where going. Chris, Chris knows where I'm going with this. Is yeah, when do when do you, Mickey, realistically think that uh, you know clubs and shows will essentially come back on the indoors? You know, functioning back similarly to how they were. When do you think that will be? Well, I have no idea. And a lot of it could depend on the November election because, you know, I guess I'm hoping if Joe Biden gets in
1: that then he's going to start doing something different on the COVID 19. Totally. Um, I mean, the big problem is. You know, as you guys know, I mean, you probably watch the news and everything. Like in other countries, like Italy and stuff, they had a real strict lockdown. You know, they enforced the social distancing and the masks, and they were able to pretty much eradicate the pandemic in in short order. Now, in our country, we we didn't get onto it very quick enough, so it started to spread. But then, you know, we locked down, what, in in, uh, the beginning of April, I guess March and April. Yeah. And then we're only into it a month, and all of a sudden the president starts telling everybody that he wants the country to open back up. So, you know, you have like, you know, everybody started opening up. Nobody's, you know, I don't know about where you guys live, but like I'm on the beach here. Nobody's wearing masks on the beach. You know, the beach beach is all crowded. Nobody's wearing masks. Nobody's wearing masks walking up and down the street. And I mean, you see them wearing masks in stores and stuff, but, you know, nobody of the public is wearing masks. And, um, you know, the disease is just spreading because pe- people aren't taken seriously. Right. You know, um, it's hard, like, say, with my house. Like, my son's 23 years old. He's always fighting with my wife because he wants to go out. All his friends are going out and going to bars and going to parties and stuff. And, you know, I can't tell him you can't go out when, you know, you get the president on TV you not know, wearing a mask and having big rallies and, you know, it just seems like the normal thing to do. You know, that's that's the problem is people are not, not taking it seriously, not doing what they're doing. And you know, we haven't even cut to the fall. They've been talking about a spike in the fall ever since it started. And you know, Dr. Fauci says, you know, it's never gone away. How can you talk about a surge or a spike that hasn't gone away? <laughs> yeah, sure. So you know, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what's going to happen. Um, I mean, Charlie Baker says he's not going to. But the clubs open up until there's a what do you call it a, a vaccine yeah yep and i don't know if there's ever going to be a vaccine i mean i don't know but, but I, I think it would be this one that yeah. trump's, trump's pushing I mean, I, I don't want to take a medicine anyways but i'm not going to take the vaccine i mean you know they're rushing it out they've never tested it Well, i mean, they and they you don't have to go back too far i guess in general who would was some, I think it was, was Gerald Ford was president. Hey, it was back not too long ago. You know, my lifetime they, they tried some vaccine, and uh, you know, hundreds of people got paralyzed from the vaccine. Ah, you know, there was some other vaccine that they tried uh, where people were growing like limbs. You know, babies were getting born with like limbs coming out of their back of their neck, and well, stuff like that. It was, like, I
2: don't up. know. If, I don't know though. Back then, if they well do not I d I don't I'm not a scientist, um I can't speak to it, but don't I don't know back then were they having these phase three stage three trials that involve like thirty to sixty thousand people, you know, to sort of get an idea of how effective it might be. I don't know if back yeah, then. I don't,
1: know about that either. I don't I don't know either, but I'm just suspicious about the way this thing's getting rushed out and you know Yeah.
3: Mhm. But I don't know. So, I don't know. You know, realistically speaking, I I don't know, but I mean, I'd be surprised in Massachusetts, you know, unless there's some kind of miracle if the bars open up even in 2021. You know, I don't know. Maybe, maybe they will. Wow. Yeah. You
1: know, we yeah. have to wait and see. It's hard, hard to say. I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah definitely. And, uh, I don't know if people are going to go out. You know, if let's, things eradicated I mean a lot of people don't want to catch the disease <laughs> they're not going to go out I mean, you know one thing trying to get the bands to come out and play but now they're going to be able to get any people to come see them yeah yeah, yeah. no I know I was just watching it was one of the things that I didn't realize but like these people that only get it you know get like some symptoms but they're right. hospitalized but the symptoms aren't going away there was some lady that was on the, the tv station the, um Last night talking about how she's had it for like six months or seven months or something, you know, she's got headaches and earaches and, you know, all these symptoms, uh, you know, long-lasting symptoms. Mm -hmm. So, I don't know, we're just going to have to wait and see. I guess that's exactly it. It's pretty much it at this point. It's for
0: what's in our control, you know, and just trying to stay safe wearing a mask if you're in public and such, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah, any any, uh, any last uh, shout outs or plugs, Mickey? Well, I don't know if any of the, the crew from the Cantab
1: is listening, but uh, I'd like to give a shout out to the two bar mates that I worked with there, Suzanne and Parise. Uh, you know, I miss them, and Richie, and you know, all, everybody from the Cantab. Yeah, alright. You know, I miss all the bands. And uh, miss uh, I you? I guess that's about
0: it. Yeah, no absolutely. Yeah. We, we missed them too.
2: Yeah, yeah just missed the whole operation. It's just good good yeah. uh good people and good times. Like you, like Chris said, or like you even said too, you know, at, right before this all happened, I think things were things were looking good. Yeah, they were for us. I mean, we were having you know we have a quite successful run there from from January right until uh, you know March
1: when the when the thing all started. Yep. So. we' so have quick the day, March thirteenth. Right, so March thirteenth. I'm working at my day job. And I got done with something, and I went through Marshalls. And uh, you know, I've been wearing the same suits and stuff for like thirty years, and they're getting kind of threadbare. So i'm thinking well i should pick up some new clothes for the summer So i, went, I haven't bought clothes for years i spent like about four hundred dollars because they always like sales on blazers and slacks and stuff so i bought all these blazers and slacks and stuff i get to the office and the first thing i see up there's this one of the bands is calling me and they say well uh, you know i don't know if we should play or not tonight this COVID night thing is, is getting pretty big then the next band calls, me, the next band, so then they all they all cancel, right? So I figured it was just one night that they're gonna cancel, and it was a fluke, and then you know. Yeah. And the next day I know I get laid off from my day job. You know the whole whole country's getting locked down. I and mean, it just just happened like that, you know, overnight. So, yeah. It's just amazing. So I got I got all these clothes that I bought that I never wore. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, Someday, someday, maybe I don't know. You know I don't. I don't know if they have my day job. I don't know if that's ever gonna open back up. You know. Yeah. So well, no, I don't. Really, I'm telling the truth. I don't really, even, in a way, I don't want to go back to work. I'm like, <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah. Reading this philosophy stuff, some of the books, know, they talk about you know when you're working for somebody else, it's a form of slavery. Which is, you know, kind of true. So this has been good for me with the COVID-19 in a way because it's the first time in my life I haven't had to answer to anybody, you know, I don't have homework to do, I don't have to be to work, you know, I'm just staying here and doing my own thing, and of course, you know, my unemployment's going to run out sometimes, so that's going to make things a little bit difficult, but, you know, I'm old enough, so I'm collecting Social Security, so I have some income,
3: mm-hmm.
1: you know, and. Uh, just to see what happens. But, you know, I'm not real anxious to go back to work for somebody else. but the it can't different because I'm like an independent contractor there. So I'm you, kind of like a business for myself. But, you know, I got to serve my clients, but still, it's not like an employer employee relationship. It's, you know, client client relationship.
2: Mickey, do, do you recommend any authors uh, of, of philosophy?
1: Oh, well, yeah, yeah, there's a couple I can, um, can uh, recommend. I mean, I, I like Plato. He's he's one of my favorites. And then there's this Roman author called Seneca, S-E-N-E-C-A. He also wrote some plays. The plays are real, like, spooky type of plays, like people eat each other and stuff, but uh, great philosopher. He was a, a Stoic philosopher. He was uh, around the time of New Rome. So, yeah. Um, I like him, and then I, you know, I don't know if this is actually philosophy, but um, this is Alice Bailey, she wrote a series of books, she's a a theosophist, Uh, what's his name, Lou Reed, I got into her for Lou Reed, Lou Reed, uh, she had this book called, *Treatise on White Magic, that Lou Reed used to, I guess, read a lot, so I, I started reading that, um, so, yeah, I mean, you know, uh, I just, but those are two I would recommend. You know, it's Plato and, and Seneca. Oh, you
2: know, thank you. Platonic Dialogues, but with, with Socrates and, um I don't know who all else. I mean, there's a lot of them, but those are the two I can think of offhand that I would really recommend. So you, so you sort of, do you prefer more of the ancient stuff
1: to modern? Yeah, oh, yeah, definitely. I definitely do. Yeah. Um, you know, oh, John Stuart, uh, John Stuart Mill's I like a lot. He's he's somewhat modern. He was, um, I think, in the nineteenth century, a laissez-faire um, philosophy. Yeah, I like John Stuart Mill's. You know, Hobbes is, was okay. I like Hobbes, but like Hume and Locke, and those guys are kind of hard to read. Um, oh, uh, David Des- Descartes, I like him. Descartes, I like the Cartesian philosophy. Uh, you know, a little bit more modern, but yeah, I prefer the ones the, the ancient, the Greek ones, the Greek and the Roman ones. Stuff from that period, anyways. All, you know, any kind of literature from that—the histories and the plays and that type of thing. What,
2: what, what about it fascinates you? What about it fascinates me about that time period? Or We're, yeah, or about the. It's almost like the Flintstones because you're reading about it. I mean the the way the people are acting and thinking and everything seems like modern, but then you realize that they
1: basically weren't that far in the stone age. I mean they didn't have hardware machines. <laughs>
2: speak about a love of oceans? Ocean? I
1: mean, the, yeah. The, like water? It's Not that I can think of, no. I can't, I can't think of <laughs> offhand. I love the ocean, I, I can tell you that. I, yeah. That's why I live where I live. Yeah, no. Uh, I was out, I was out in Colorado with something, which I like Colorado, but I just, you know, was landlocked. I just couldn't stand being away from the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, it, it is pretty...
2: Um, we, you, really, so much, we really appreciate it Mickey and yeah we'll, oh, yeah we'll be seeing you very soon we'll be in touch
3: okay guys I'll, I'll talk to you later then